Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Romans. That'll be Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is page 947 on the blue Bibles in front of you. But as you're finding this text, let me provide some footing or context for where we will be picking up. You see, the great book of Romans is arguably the richest, the deepest, the most doctrinally profound book of the whole Bible. It is a theological masterwork, as it is Paul the Apostle's comprehensive understanding of the hidden and divine things of God, then written down for us to make these things known. For as one theologian is known to have quipped, God cannot be known, that is, personally, relationally, unless He makes Himself known. And there is no greater example for the depths of God's self-disclosure than in this letter through Paul. But Romans isn't just about the riches of God, His person, His work, and His ways, as summarized in the gospel. It also has to do with the very practical outworking of what all of that means for the believer, for the Christian, and how they should then respond to God and His gospel with their lives in their every day. And there is an ordering to this, right understanding and then living, because what you believe then informs how you live. And so as in all of Paul's letters, he establishes doctrine before devotion, understanding before practice, and relationship before worship. Taking the first 11 chapters of this letter to establish the foundation of God and His gospel before then moving to the prescriptions and exhortations, the do's and the don'ts of the Christian life therefrom. And our two verses this morning act as the climactic hinge for where Paul takes this turn from God and his gospel to the believer and their response forward in a gospel exhortation. It's very important. It's very important for every believer. And so for this last sermon... This last word that I present to you here in Redeemer Baptist Church, I want Paul's gospel exhortation to those in Rome to be a renewed gospel exhortation before you, that as you move forward from this place in a week's time, you will have afresh in your mind a resolve by the mercies of Christ to live renewed for the glory of God. And with that, let's go ahead and read our text, this gospel exhortation. Now, I'd like to remind everyone that this is the Word of our God, and we should receive it for the renewal of our minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of our God, and thanks be to Him. Well, I know some of you are Marvel fans, and others probably not as much, and that's fine. It doesn't really matter where you land on that scale as I'm sure everyone here at least recognizes some of their more iconic characters. Characters like Spider-Man, the Hulk, Thor, 
Black Panther, Black Widow, and Captain America. These are all beloved fictional heroes with superpowers or giftings that many people resonate with and adore. And perhaps at no greater time in their history than in the last 20 years or so as these characters have been brought to life on the silver screen. Well, one of my favorite movies out of all of these is about a lesser-known character in the second Captain America movie titled with his same name, The Winter Soldier. And for those of you who don't know who this is, nerd out with me for just a minute as I tell you about him. I think you'll find him relevant for us this morning. But The Winter Soldier's real name was James Buchanan Barnes, or Bucky for short. And Bucky grew up as the best friend of the man who would go on to become the original super soldier known as Captain America. Captain America, if you'll remember, was genetically engineered to be an ideal, an elite living weapon who would lead the fight against an enemy and an ideology that was perhaps the darkest the world had ever seen. And he did so with Bucky, his most trusted friend, right by his side in that fight, sharing the same values and righteous resolve to beat back the darkness no matter the personal cost. And it would come at a cost, as Bucky, in the midst of a battle on a train, was thrown to his death by an explosion as the train railed over a high mountain pass in enemy territory. Or so it was believed he was thrown to his death. In actuality, Bucky survived the explosion and the fall, just not all in one piece. He had lost an arm, and to make matters worse, he was discovered and taken captive by the enemy, who would then experiment on Bucky in an attempt to create a super soldier of their own. And being successful in their experimentation, Bucky was transformed into such a super soldier. He was even given a new bionic arm so as to not be lacking in any bodily capacity, which is to say, physically, Bucky was at peak condition as a super soldier. But as to Bucky's person, his identity, his beliefs and resolve, the enemy could not bend or coerce him unto their will. And so they engaged in mind manipulation in an attempt to erase his memories or suppress his person, effectively reprogramming reprogramming his mind to serve their evil will and purposes. And so it was that Bucky, now the Winter Soldier, became the greatest servant, the greatest living weapon for his adversary, using all of his giftings, his powers, his body, his strength and speed to further their cause. And much of the movie and those following have to do with the Winter Soldier becoming self-aware of these truths, causing him to wrestle with who he really was or was meant to be versus who the enemy had reprogrammed or repurposed him to be. And as Bucky sorts it all out in his mind, he then moves to leave the mantle of the Winter Soldier behind for a new life of redemption and righteousness. And only so far as this illustration can go, I hope you can maybe see where I'm going with this. As we were made for good, to image God himself in the world that he created. But nearly just as soon as opportunity afforded, we were taken captive by the trifecta enemy of God, the world, the flesh, and the devil, 
and then we were reprogrammed or repurposed through sin to serve the enemy rather than our Creator. Though in a manner unlike with Bucky, this was done with our complicity and suppressing the truth of God in our own unrighteousness. That's the flesh. But now, being set free through Christ by the mercies of God, there are still thoughts and patterns and temptations that we wrestle against as they attempt to draw us back to our adversary and the life of sin that we knew in his service. And so I think many of us can relate to Bucky in his struggle to be transformed from the life he was well-versed in under the enemy to who he is becoming in his new pursuit of righteousness. For us, that's as those redeemed in Christ to bring him glory. And as we'll see through our text, God does not leave us without help, direction, and encouragement for our transformation in him. And with that being said, we can summarize our text as stated earlier with a one-sentence appeal, which is, by the mercies of Christ, live renewed to the glory of God. By the mercies of Christ, live renewed to the glory of God. And we'll see this through two parts, one for each verse. In verse 1, we'll see reasonable responses to the mercies of Christ. And in verse 2, we'll see renewable resolves to the glory of God. So reasonable responses to the mercies of Christ and renewable resolves to the glory of God. There's uh, three subpoints for each. But as we turn our attention to verse 1, we find that it starts with an appeal. And just so we're all on the same page as to what an appeal is, an appeal is an intention statement meant to drive or draw one to a particular action. Though it is not quite a command, it is more than a suggestion or request. It is a strong encouragement or a heartfelt plea. That is what an appeal is. And from verse 1a, we see there is a necessary context for the appeal as Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And as previously mentioned, Paul has just spent 11 chapters talking through the depths of God. He even breaks into doxology right before our text as he approaches the summit of where this has all been building and leading. Chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! and how inscrutable his ways. And now as Paul begins chapter 12, with having reached the climactic peak of this endeavor, we find that everything leading up to this point has not been to just get us to the top of the mountain. And to be clear, the top of this mountain, the knowledge of God, is majestic with an amazing and awe-inspiring view. But like Peter on the mount... Witnessing Christ manifest glory, the point of it was not to tabernacle there, to set up camp believing the knowledge itself was the destination. And we can determine this simply from Paul's use of the word, therefore, in the middle of the first line, when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, which is the indicative that all, became, that, all that came before the therefore was meant to put the ball on the tee for what is to follow, to be the launching point for this forthcoming appeal. And in a way, you could think of it like a base jumper 
who uses one of those squirrel suits or wing suits to fly. You know the ones. They connect the hands to the feet to make the whole human body a glider or a kite. And if you've seen the videos of these guys, you know they don't reach those high mountain points and peaks, but for any other purpose than to then jump off of or launch off of and into flight. And in a similar way, the knowledge of God in his gospel, as laid out in this letter, was meant to build to this climactic launching point, with belief then being the jump and the wing suit of Christ catching flight being the enabled worship of God, worship that could not have happened in the enmity we share with him before reconciliation for Christ, as otherwise the jump would be to a great fall. For you cannot rightly worship God without first being reconciled to him through the only means of peace that he holds out, peace through his Son, Jesus Christ. And in this, we see our first reasonable response to the mercies of Christ. Reasonable response number one, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. And this will be our longest subpoint because this is what Paul has spent much time building to, the jump. And it's important to say the knowledge supporting the jumping platform is very important for this appeal. You can go back and read exactly why in Romans 10, where Paul makes clear, unless one hears and believes the good news of Christ, the gospel, they cannot be saved. That's how important this knowledge is. And because it plays such a pivotal role, there are many who would cut short from where it is meant to lead, belief unto worship, taking the knowledge itself as the point, conflating or confusing knowing about God with knowing God, as if they are one and the same when they are not. As the more one knows about God does not necessarily correlate with a more legitimate communion with Him. And I'll give you three quick examples to this in the religious, the anti-religious, and some who in a way are both. First, the religious, as we see in John 5. This is where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, the very religious Jews, for their study of the Scriptures, thinking the knowledge in them would be the source for their eternal life. But as Jesus said, the Scriptures pointed to Him in whom alone eternal life is found. And in missing the aim of the Scriptures to know God, they, the religious, refused to come to Jesus for life, and this to their downfall. Second, the anti-religious, as exemplified by many of the professing atheists we see around us in the modern day, some of whom intellectually know much of the Bible and about God, as they study it to likewise gain a knowledge of Him, like the religious, only their aim is to discredit God's existence altogether, and also to their downfall. Third, the demons. And we see them brought up in the book of James. When in speaking to belief in God, James says to his readers, you believe that God is one, and you do well to do so. But even the demons believe and shudder. James' point being, the demons believe in God. And they actually have an accurate knowledge and understanding of him as they're rightfully terrified of him, showcased in their shuddering of showing reverence to His holiness and the self-awareness they have of their own guilt before Him. 
which is to say the demons rightly know of God, recognize God, and believe in God. And yet, they don't love Him, they don't follow Him, and they don't worship Him. And so their knowledge and even belief in Him is of no advantage. It only serves as a looming and tormenting reminder that His inevitable wrath for them is yet to come. There is no hope of salvation for the demons. They have no gospel, no good news with God, only an expectation of judgment. And hear me, church. Apart from the mercies of God, as summarized by Paul, this would be just as true for us, for every one of us. For we were likewise dead in our trespasses and sins, liable to a coming judgment with no escape, no chance or hope of avoiding the fall. And yet God, in His mercy and His great love with which He loved us, He sent us a Savior through the person and work of His own beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly because we could not in order to then die as a sacrifice to pay for or cover our sins that we might be reconciled to Him, which should all the more help us to see the right and reasonable response to the kindness of God His grace given, His mercies extended, His love poured out through Jesus is not merely belief in God, but repentance and faith unto His worship, unto heartfelt thanks, adoration, and praise. For He has freely given to us what He did not offer to the demons, the forgiveness of sins, redemption, reconciliation, salvation, eternal life, all through the mercies of God, the mercies of Christ." Church, are you thankful for Him? Does the thought of God and His mercies, of Jesus, like Paul, make you want to sing and shout and dance and praise Him, to live renewed to His glory? It should, because for those who have put Him on at the peak of that understanding and that joy he brings, that's the natural outworking, the reasonable response. And as Paul starts to make this turn, it's as if he has given the encouragement to those who get it, to those who have put him on to spread out their arms, the metaphorical wings, and jump. Because by the mercies of Christ, God has enabled us to fly, to soar, to ride the winds unto heaven, to worship God rightly as we were redeemed to, which is only true, as Paul says here, of the brothers, the believers, the Christians, of hopefully you and me as those reconciled to God. And before we go further to consider the flight patterns of the Christian life, I think it might be worthy of our time to address any here who may not be a believer, a brother, because the relevance of the rest of this text, this appeal, is for those who believe. As you cannot rightly worship God without first being reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. But just because the forthcoming appeal is not relevant to you as of yet, does not mean there is not likewise a very real but very different appeal before you this morning. An appeal that goes out to all the earth through the gospel that you be reconciled to God through repentance and faith today, while there is still time and opportunity. 
as one day sooner than you or I anticipate, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that He is God the Son, which means everyone who has or will ever live will also take the leap from that launching point of that truth and recognition of Him as our God, our ruler, our judge, and our creator, who not only knows intimately every hair on your head as He put it there, but also every sin tied to your name, all the way down to the wandering thoughts of the mind and the grumblings of the inner heart. He has an account of it all. As R.C. Sproul has said, Every single sin is a cosmic act of treason, treason against him. And in case you'd plead ignorance, Paul would absolve you of that, as back in Romans 1 that we read earlier, he reveals that even in the simplest of terms, everyone knows there is a God to whom we are accountable. Because God has left us a constant and perpetual witness not only within us through the conscience, but also outside of us through the objective witness of His creation, the things that He has made. Romans 1, 19 through 20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, mankind, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, man, you and me, are without excuse. And then, in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him. Rather, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Which is to say, Though everyone has a conscious awareness of God, they suppress the truth of Him in their unrighteousness because we love our sin. And we cannot enjoy our sin with Him ever before us. And so we become futile in our thinking and attempt to put Him away, out of mind as if He didn't exist like the atheist. But this is to no avail because judgment is just as eminent for every man as it is for every demon, whether they want to acknowledge God or not. And the jump for those not unable to fly by Jesus will be in the guilt of their sins to the free fall of damnation, as all men are without excuse, minus the man who repents and believes in Christ, which is the call, the appeal before you now, to repent and believe, to take the leap of faith, trusting in Christ and His righteousness as your only hope of being uplifted through to heaven. And this is the first reasonable response to the mercies of God, repentance and faith, hope and trust, reconciliation through Jesus. And with that being said, we'll move forward to our second reasonable response. Reasonable response number two, devotion to God. Devotion to God. And as Paul moves forward from the recap the summarization of the mercies of Christ, he now lays down a thesis statement, making the appeal for the brothers to present your bodies, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, at this point, 
it's important to remember that there is nothing more that needs be done for the brothers, the Christians, to be put in right standing before God. Christ has done it all. The work of salvation is accomplished. It is complete. The benefits of which are received entirely through faith at the moment of first true belief. And I know we hit this all the time, but it is important to understand because everything actionable that is forthcoming is not meant to add anything to the finished work of Christ as if it were lacking. And so the appeal for us out of hearts of thankfulness is for us to live in a way that is pleasing to God while already enjoying His eternal favor secured in Christ. I'm going to say that one more time because it is important. The appeal for us out of hearts of thankfulness is for us to live in a way that is pleasing to God while already enjoying His eternal favor secured in Christ, which is both reasonable and rational, because we don't want to continue dishonoring God in the giving of ourselves over to sin, to that which Christ bled and died for on the cross. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, all we've previously known is that life, a life of sin, a life of rebellion, one that we are totally given over to. Doing the bidding of the enemy, we were winter soldiers. But now, being redeemed, we are on the side of God, of righteousness, which means we should desire to live righteously, to be holy as He is holy. And this would be a completely new way of life from how we lived before, as a redeemed life is one given over to God in devotion, as a perpetual offering, or as a living sacrifice. Holy, holy and acceptable, we are all in. Because, hear me, church, the Christian life is not just for Sundays. It's for every day. And this goes beyond the heart and the mind. It goes beyond even our resolve to everything we are and everything we have, including our whole bodies, which has less to do with the actual parts of your body, your hand, your foot, your elbow, and more to do with the sum of all its parts, your whole person given over to God in worship. And it makes sense because Bucky, he cannot live renewed in righteousness as a whole if he reserves his arm for the service of the enemy. That would be a house divided against itself, one arm pushing forward while the other pulls back. And so one of those two allegiances must be put down into the grave, which is what Paul speaks of earlier in Romans 6, 6, when he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus which is to say, we cannot live as double agents, professing allegiance to God and then disregarding Him by showing allegiance to the enemy and stealing with our hands, believing that Jesus is Lord only to betray Him with unwholesome talk from our mouths, putting our feet in places He bid us not go, or watching with our eyes that which He tells us not to look upon 
the body would be betraying the self, using its redeemed parts to dishonor the one who redeemed the whole. Rather than being living sacrifices, we would be living contradictions, which is not a good witness nor testimony to God. And so let me ask you the question, are you a living sacrifice or are you a living contradiction? It's a sobering question. Church, being redeemed, we must live redeemed, devoted to Him in faith-fueled, Spirit-empowered, heartfelt intentionality and action that He would be glorified in our lives. And this is where Paul concludes verse 1 as he says, this is your spiritual worship. And that moves us to our third reasonable response. Reasonable response number three, worship to God. Worship to God. You see, faith, repentance, devotion, it all leads to and is a part of worship, the worship of God. And though we think of worship as spiritual, even in our text, your spiritual worship, a closer translation for the word spiritual here is actually the word reasonable. That's why I've been using it so much. And this makes our text read, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Your reasonable worship. Church, it is reasonable to worship God. And why wouldn't it be? We were created for that purpose. We were redeemed for that purpose. God is our chief end, which means if we weren't worshiping God, that would be unreasonable. See how that works? It is unreasonable not to worship God. It is unreasonable to sin against God. It is unreasonable to suppress the truth of Him in unrighteousness. And this is why we can only do that and the futility, the foolishness of our minds, because it is unreasonable. And this leads us to ask another question. Is your life reasonable or unreasonable in this regard? Do you do all things to God's glory? Do you work your job to the glory of God? Do you love your spouse to the glory of God? Do you raise your children to the glory of God? Your finances, your time, your speech, are they all stewarded to the glory of God? Or how about your mind? Are your thoughts glorifying to God? How about your politics, your social media presence, your hobbies, your TV or movie habits, what you eat or what you drink? Do they all reflect, do they all give glory to God? Or do they give glory to someone or something else? Maybe even yourself. Hear me, church. Giving glory to God is reasonable. But giving glory to someone or something else, that is unreasonable. And just so we're clear on what it means to give glory to God, it means you do whatever it is with God in view for the uplifting of His name, for His promotion. Whereas before Christ, we put God away out of mind to the glory of other things, namely ourselves, now redeemed, we put Him ever before us 
that he would be first in all things. And so we ask questions like, will God be pleased in this? Will God be honored in this? Will God be exalted in this? And if he would, we move forward. And if not, we pull back. We rethink, we regroup, repent if necessary, redirect, and then when right, we rightly re-engage to give Him glory. Now, the reality is none of us will do this perfectly. We can't even do it on our own apart from the help of God the Holy Spirit. We fail, we falter, we fall short. Each of us, probably every one of us already this morning. And that's okay. Because remember, we are already secure having God's favor in Christ, which means God will not love us less when we fall short, nor will He love us more when we do well, because He can't love us any more than He already does in the love of Jesus. And this is not a license to sin, by no means, Paul would say back in Romans 6, but an encouragement to love God all the more when you do, remembering afresh His mercies while pressing on to His praises with continuing resolution or renewing commitment as we walk freely in the forgiveness that He gives. And this leads us into verse 2, where we find some helpful applications for this in the form of renewable resolves. So verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the Christian life at many times will be to the level of your engagement. As a general rule, if you practice the spiritual disciplines out of your love for God, you read and meditate on your Bible, you are committed in prayer and evangelism, you engage in Christian fellowship, or are a part of a local church for your spiritual oversight, care, and accountability, you fight sin and pursue holiness, and so on, you will grow and mature in your faith. You will perpetually look more and more and more like Christ as God sanctifies you through those means, those practices. And as God uses these means to effectively undo the training of the enemy within, time, repetition, and action or commitment in righteousness. Whereas if you are not engaged or intentionally active in the faith, well, not only will the enemy's training stand strong over you, but your inactivity or disengagement to the Lord will give the very real impression that you are a weakened sheep prone to wandering from your shepherd before the eyes of the enemy who is watching and waiting for the right time to leave no soldier behind, but not for the, that soldier's good. And so in verse 2, we see strategy, we see practicality, we see checks and balances, we see resolves that being perpetuated will help us to effectively be engaged as we live renewed to God's glory. The first of which is nonconformity to the world. So renewable resolve number one, nonconformity to the world. Now, I wanted to make this point read, separate from the world, because it would be so much easier. And yet, that is not the will of Jesus. As revealed in John 17, 15, when in praying to the Father, Jesus makes this request for the good of His people. He prays, 
I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. In other words, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. On guard against the devil and his schemes, their lies and effects, but not by wholly separating from the world. Because until Jesus comes or calls us home, his people are his plan to take the saving message of the gospel forward to lost people, to other winter soldiers who desperately need to hear it as much as we did. For it is their only hope, just as it is ours. And so God would not have us sideline ourselves to hinder His rescue efforts for those He seeks, for those He foreknows or foreloves, as we saw from Romans 8 when EJ preached a few weeks back. And just so it said, God does not need us to accomplish His saving work, but for whatever His purpose is, He does determine to use us, to involve us in that good work. And this is why as Protestants, we are not in favor of monkery or monasteries. We pursue holiness and consecration, yes, but not at the expense of pitting any one of God's commands against another. Holiness against that which else we are called to in the Lord, the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. I'm so thankful to a friend of mine who helped me to understand this when I was a newer believer. Because being zealous for the Lord, I went to a Christian worship conference out in the Midwest. I won't name the conference, as in hindsight, it was pretty heretical. But the so-called church or organization that put this conference on had created a culture where those at the church would commit themselves to 20, 30, 40 plus hours a week to a ministry at the building, which ran 24 hours a day. And effectively, outside of their vocations, this separated those who participated from the outside world in their perceived pursuit of holiness. And to be clear, this is how many cults operate with spiritual misdirections and manipulations. Look how spiritual. Look how holy. But my friend, upon hearing about it, he immediately called their error out for what it was, as you cannot pit God's will against itself. Pursue holiness, but not at the expense of the Great Commission, by removing yourself from the field of play where the wheat and the chaff are to grow together until the great day of harvest when He, God, will be the one to separate the two, some into the barn to be stored, and the others into the fire to be burned, which is Matthew 3.12. And so when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, he is not talking about taking ourselves out of the world, but keeping the world out of us, its ways, its values, its pursuits, its belief systems and structures, all things and ways counter to the Lord and His character, to the Lord and His commands, His will and His ways. And so we must be committed to the renewing resolve of not conforming to the world, of not taking up again the mantle of being a winter soldier. But in order to get away from the ways of the world, we must be deprogrammed, detransitioned, or reverse engineers engineered from the enemy's influence, their teaching and training, their indoctrination, their deceptions, manipulations, and fostering of godlessness. 
And this leads us to our next renewable resolve. Renewable resolve number one, nonconformity to the world. Renewable resolve number two, conformity to the Lord. Conformity to the Lord. Because when one turns away from something, they will effectively be turning to something else. In repentance, we turn from sin to God, to righteousness. And in the same way, turning away from conformity to the world will effectively require one to conform to the opposite of the world, which is the Lord God Himself. We see this in part B of verse 2 where Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, when I was in college, I remember a friend and I running into an important question that directly, directly related uh, to this transformation. We were both being discipled in the faith for the very first time by an older and much more mature believer. And these were rich days and rich times as we combed through the Scriptures together, talking through the deep things of God. Well, one of the things that repeatedly came up in our time was the gospel itself. We often landed there, and it was helpful. It was needed every time. But one day, my friend asked the question, we're saved by God's grace, by His mercy contrary to our merit. There is nothing we do to earn or contribute or add anything to the finished work of Christ. He's done it all. It's accomplished, and we, and we receive it through faith alone. Yes, we believe that. But after that, after belief, what comes next? What do we do? And our mentor, for lack of a better term, he just leaned in real close from across the table and with a deep and hearty voice, like a movie preview guy, narrating in such a way that you want to see whatever movie it is that he's pitching. He leans in and he says, Be transformed. I can still hear it in my head. I can't do it like him, but be transformed. And it was a good answer. Obviously, one, he was in no doubt pulling from our very text, but at the same time, his answer frustrated the living daylights out of my friend. He got it. He believed it, but what on earth was he supposed to do with it, with be transformed? Well, maybe some of you here are wondering the same. Well, I think the first thing we need to recognize with this is that transformation is something the Lord God alone does in us from the inside out. It is not something we work, will, or contribute to in any way because we are what we are. The leopard cannot change his spots, the zebra his stripes. Nor can we change or transform ourselves, our hearts, or even our affections unto the Lord. That all takes a supernatural work of God, which He accomplishes through His Holy Spirit. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, where He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And then, listen to this curious last line, be careful to obey my rules. So God causes us to walk in his ways, and we must be careful to. You see, we are passive beneficiaries 
of God's grace and His transforming work. And at the same time, that does not mean there is not action, intentionality, and effort on the believer's part for transformation to occur. This is why Paul's exhortation goes on to say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is not a passive sentiment, but an intentional call to a particular action, the engagement of the mind. Christianity being a thinking religion, and that requires deliberate involvement and effort from the believer. And this is not a contradiction of terms. This is rather where God uses the spiritual disciplines that we perpetuate, we practice, we are resolved to in faith to reshape us, to reform us away from the enemy, his lies and their effects, and towards himself, towards what is good and right and true by the renewal of our minds. And the primary means that God uses to do this is His given Word, His divine revelation, His revealed will. Because as I said at the start, God cannot be known relationally, His person, His will, and His ways, unless He makes Himself known, which He has done through His Word as yet another grace given to us. But hear me, church, Unless we read it, we cannot know it, nor can we be transformed by it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, that's transformation, equipped for every good work. We want to be complete and equipped for every good work, church. And so maybe a great practical application or encouragement for us is this. Be resolved out of the love and affection you have for God to want to know and honor Him more and more by committing yourselves to His Word, by spending time and energy reading and studying, meditating on, wrestling with, and praying over it. And not just to learn about Him and His ways, but to respond in Him in faith, repentance, and practice, submitting yourselves to God and His Word as you commit yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable worship. And then, by God's hand, in the perpetual renewing of your mind, you will be transformed, conformed to the Lord to the Lord and His person, the Lord and His ways. And in His grace, listen, church, this is important. This is the Lord undoing or walking back the effects of what we read of earlier in Romans 1, where after man kept pushing after sin, God lifted His restraining hand in judgment, giving us over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. But here in Romans 12, with Christ, Having paid the penalty for our sins, God is now drawing us back to Himself in the renewing of our minds. And you must see this contrast, because the beliefs of the mind affect how you live. In Romans 1, God gives the mind of the sinner over to be debased in judgment, and as a result, they run after sin, which is foolishness. But in Romans 12, God renews the mind of the redeemed back to Himself in grace, 
that we might run to Him, which is reasonable, right, and good. And in the middle is Jesus and His gospel, marking the difference between a mind lost and a mind made right. And if you have any doubts as to the judgment of a mind completely given over, of a mind being lost, just look to the current cultural conversations about gender dysphoria or gender identity as it has been rebranded and pushed for by the lost world. A man can be a woman, a woman a man, or a cat, or a canary, or even an inanimate object like a lamp. And if you think I'm joking, I'm not. And it is very sad, and we should pray very hard for those lost people. But however it is that a person wants to self-identify, the world then affirms and demands of us that we give the same affirmations, no matter how irrational. And though it may sometimes be hard to say no under the threats and pressures of the world, we cannot comply with the demands to affirm untruths or distortions. It's not loving. It's not kind. It's not compassionate. It's actually harmful and hateful to lost people and dishonoring to God who made them just as He intended them to be. And to falsely affirm someone in that kind of deception would be to profess that God got it wrong when He did not. And further, it would aid in keeping the lost enslaved under those harmful deceptions and abuses by the enemy. In other words, Instead of offering Bucky a lifeline with the truth, we would be further securing on his helmet as the winter soldier. And this is why we must constantly be alert and on guard against the deceptions of the world, lest we fall back into things harmful to ourselves and to others. And this leads us to our final renewable resolve. Renewable resolve number three, discern the will of God. Discern the will of God. As we see in the third part of verse 2, where Paul writes, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when we speak of discerning God's will, very often, most often, people are speaking of God's secret will, of that which He alone knows and sovereignly decrees, for how and when everything will come to pass. This is His will, His sovereign plan for all things set definitively by the Father in the past. And it will come to pass exactly as God determined. But the will of God that Paul is referring to here is not the secret will of God. Rather, it is God's perceptive will, His revealed will. And so you have God's secret will relating to His divine plan and purposes, and God's revealed will, which has to do with what God has spoken and directed us in through His Word. His decrees, His commands, His precepts, encouragements, cautions, and safeguards for godly living and godly worship. Some examples to include, do not lie, as we just considered, steal or cheat, honor thy mother and father, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and so on. Those are all directives of God's revealed will given for us. So when Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, he is speaking to the discernment of God's revealed will and what is good and acceptable and perfect, that we might walk in it, even in the unsurety of not knowing what his secret will is for us. And so one relevant example for all of us this morning, I do not know what God's secret will is for what church God would have next for each of you. But I do know, through His revealed will, God would have you each in a church where you would be connected, loved, and cared for, for your good. And so having His will both revealed and discerned to this, there should be haste, there should be urgency on your part to find another gospel church to join in obedience to His will. And the same is true for everything else in your life. Not always knowing God's secret will, we are still called to discern and diligently walk in His revealed will, whatever that may be. But to the discerning of God's will, I realize many of you might desire more than generalized principles for how we make those discernments. But here's the thing. We are not Elijah on the mount, having God throw down fire to make grand discernments for us as to many of life's unique circumstances that we'll walk in, which is to say, signs and wonders, the casting of lots, discerning tea leaves, or the Christian equivalent of fleecing, the voice of God born from heaven, or declarations given through His angels on earth. Though all of these are means by which God has given discernments to His will, they are not the norm, especially now, as we have the full revelation of His revealed will given to us through Christ His Son, His Holy Spirit, and His written Word, holy and inspired. And so though great showings full of God's power may bring crystal clarity to His will for our lives, they're also a bit void of the relational component that God desires for us, of us communing with Him as we make discernments together through daily deliberation of His Word and with prayer. Because unlike the world, God desires a relationship with us over mindless obedience, which is to say, to God, we are not nameless, faceless, expendable winter soldiers who are only desired for the taking and executing of orders. We are rather His beloved children, adopted, loved, and cared for from the innermost part of God's affectionate heart. And so our obedience to Him and and our discernment of His will are not meant to be from a place of compliance or obligation or fear, but as He would desire out of love and commitment to our Father as we walk with Him in the discernment of His will to His heartfelt praise. With that, church, I leave you with this charge. By the mercies of Christ, live renewed to the glory of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have brought us from death to life, from minds given over to sin and judgment to minds being renewed to you in grace. And we have Christ to praise for this, his person, his work, his sacrifice, and his resurrection, that we might live reconciled to you for all eternity. And now, Lord, as we seek to discern and walk in your will in the here and now, Be with us and empower us in the resolve to pour ourselves out as living sacrifices unto you 
for the promotion and praise of your great name. In Jesus, we make this appeal. Amen.